2: This is the Decibel Geek Podcast with Chris Sinzak and Aaron Camaro.
1: I know you've been waiting and here we are, time once again for the Decibel Geek Podcast. My name is Aaron Camaro and I'm joined as always by my kick-ass awesome friend and co-host Chris Sinzak. What's going on brother? We're back yeah how you doing just feeling good you know we've been on a roll lately with the show we've been having a lot of fun and putting out some really good episodes but i'm feeling like we need to do an interview man it's been too long since we've done an interview so i said chris man you gotta find us somebody and man did you come through
0: yeah through the power of facebook (laughs) gotta love it so yeah so we have uh Mike Fraser joining us this week and uh, if you don't know his name you definitely know his work because his his resume is a mile long and filled with tons of records from 1980 all the way through today that you've probably listened to, Uh, notably five different ACDC records and tons of great stuff including Blue Murder, Aerosmith, Permanent Vacation and Pump and Metallica and tons of stuff and uh, we're going to get all into it here in
1: just a few minutes. Man, so many awesome albums. I mean, man, we missed out on some stuff. (laughs) Oh, easily. There's only so much time. And I mean, if you need to, take a moment, pause this, and look up his discography. Look at everything that he's had his hand in from the year 1980 all the way up to 2020. And you're going to be pretty amazed and understand why we couldn't cover everything. But rest assured... We are the Decibel Geek Podcast, so we definitely covered the rock and roll, and we're going to have an amazing conversation today with Mike Frazier. But you know us. Before we get to all that, we got to take care of our business, and our business, well, we love them, their reviews and recommendations, Podchaser, Apple Podcast Reviews, Facebook recommendations, however you want to give them to us, we'll take them because we love them, and it really does help the show a lot when it comes to other people finding a show like ours, because that's what they're looking for. So a review like this really helps. This one comes to us from Ingle Lizard. Oh, a recent guest on Beat the Geek, I think. Yep, it makes sense, because it's titled, I'm a Jerk. (laughs) And there's five stars, and it goes like this. I've been listening to these guys since about episode 10. Wow. and have failed to write a review. Always at the top of my podcast list. Albums Unleashed of Wild America, Slaved to the Grind, and Motley Crew 94. Are you kidding me? Killer. Great interviews, Beat the Geek, New Noise, Camaro's Cutouts, and I just want to thank you guys. I appreciate what you do. Rock on. Awesome. Brett told us he was going to leave us a review after almost nine years. He's finally come through for us, but he did it in a big way. Thank you, man. Awesome. Thanks so much. Very cool. Now, we had a lot of fun last week, didn't we? Yes, we did. Yep, we tried out something new, and people seemed to dig it. Brush with greatness. We talked to Jeff Cecil. We talked to Richie Rivera, and we talked to Dave Tedder, and we got cool stories about Dockin', about Alice in Chains, and Rick James. Man, what a great story that was.
0: Uh, That's going to be a hard one to top.
1: But the cool thing is is you guys followed instructions, and you made us a list. When last week's episode was posted on Facebook, you added your names to it. So next time we do this again, we're going to pull up that post. And look, and I already seen some on there. You met Alice Cooper at Home Depot. I want to hear that story.
0: Yeah, I know Alice was shopping for a circular saw, apparently. Wow. (laughs) Wow.
1: (laughs) Stage prop, maybe.
0: Yeah, thank you guys for all the feedback, and uh, you you might wind up on the show for sure.
1: Yeah, I like that. I like talking to the listeners, and I like when listeners help by giving us questions to ask our guests, because you know what? We've proved over the years we can do a pretty damn good interview, but I really like it because you guys can contribute to Decibel Geek because... This show always has been and always will be about you, the listener. So, thank you to everybody that contributed questions for today. And thank you to everybody that shared last week's episode because they are Geeks of the Week. Geeks
0: of the Week this week are Rock and Ron Runyon, Samuel Wetz, Bach Oak, Overs Fire Podcast, Bill Elam, Matt Ashcraft, Eric Senzak. That's my brother. Oh, yeah. Richie Rivera, the man himself, Scott Crouch, David Cathy, Adam Cox, Mike Parnell, Joseph Capone, Christopher Stokes, Simon Cat. Michael Burrell, Craig Turtich, Patrick Breen, Rob Harris, Paul Smith, Grayson Gallegos, Jeffrey Mendenhall, David Glenn, Paul Corn, Andrew Jacobs, Aaron Baker, Doug Fox, JJP Body of the Soul, Eladio, Hakon Bergstad, Jeff Taylor, Stick Stickman, Alan Deshant, Ernesto Aguiar, Vet Halen, The Alternate Route Podcast, Focus on Metal Podcast, Nick Minnow, and as always.
1: The Mooger Mooger Fuger. That's right. Those are our people. Why? Because they went out and shared and retweeted last week's episode, which is really awesome because what these people are doing is they're sharing what we're doing with all their people and all their people go, wow, that's really cool. I need to check that out. And so we grow the community and that means more people talking over on the Facebook page, which Coxie is running real well for us. And then we got more people tuning in decibel geek TV where rock and Ron is adding all the episodes and has a awesome backlog of live entertainment and kick-ass bands going on over there you want to get yourself a decibel geek t-shirt you got to check us out at clickteashop.com you're gonna love all the cool stuff they got going on over there not just podcasts like us but kiss inspired stuff and all kinds of cool things go to clickteashop.com get yourself a decibel geek t-shirt and something else too what else i'm excited i'm ready to talk to the man
0: yeah here's our talk with mike fraser Your credits listing is is pretty insane. I mean, you you've really worked on tons of stuff going back to the early '80s uh, that Aaron and I both you know grew up listening to and some of our favorite records. So, uh, a very prolific career. And uh, I know obviously this is kind of a getting to know you episode, so we what? definitely want to have you back in the future to kind of maybe break down a particular album, you know, track by track.
3: Yeah. Sure. Okay. That sounds like fun too.
1: Yeah, for sure. You got a resume that's like a mile long, just full of amazing stuff, pieces of rock and roll history. And, uh, I mean, I guess to start, I mean, a lot of our listeners, we've got listeners that are, you know, musicians that have done very well for themselves. And we've got listeners that are kind of like me. They're just fans of rock music. So for you, somebody that's done all three, can you, could you break it down in the simplest terms? The difference between a producer, An engineer and a mixer.
2: All right, well, a producer is kind of the
3: captain of the ship, if you would. Uh, And in the music industry, as I guess a lot of your listeners would know, a producer is kind of like the director of a film. Uh, So he's directing things, you know, he's kind of liaisons with the band, uh, make sure they have the, the songs written. Uh, that they want to do. Uh, some producers help a lot with the writing or co-writing of the songs. Uh, so he's got the bigger picture uh, with what the band wants and what the where the direction the producer wants to take them to to achieve those goals. Um, so the engineer uh, is is the guy that's you know fiddles all the knobs and gets the sounds and and captures the band. Uh, out in the studio, and if you like that to the movie industry he uh, the engineer's like the cameraman so he's he's capturing everything uh according to sort of the producer's directives and you know when you work a lot with a, 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 the same producers, you become a team so those lines kind of get blurred you know as a as an engineer um you know the experienced engineer you know i can pipe in and say hey how about if we try this or hey let's do that and you're not walking on the producer's um, you know toes or anything right and then a, a mixer is basically the same as an engineer but the mixer is the guy that takes all the colors that you've recorded all the guitars drums vocals everything and the mixer blends it all in together into what you guys hear is the final product so you try and and really um, make sure that painting is comes out and sparkles and and does everything that song is supposed to do. You know, as a mixer, you're, you you still got to think of what the song is. It doesn't matter what instruments is there. What's the core of the song? And some songs are very sort of vocal driven. So the, the instruments have to be more of a background, uh, holding that th- those vocals up some are more you know riff oriented, so those got to be louder the vocals are just uh, lyrics over top of that you know i mean there's different perspectives so the mixer's responsibility is to find what he feels is the perspective of the song and then hopefully the producer and the band agree with it <laughs>
0: nice sort of, kind of in a, in a nutshell <laughs> right well, you, um, yeah, so, like, you know, just going through your credits, going, you know, at the beginning, like, and I, I saw another interview with you with the uh, Australian fellow on YouTube, and, yeah. and, uh, you know, you kind of went through your story about how, you know, you took a janitor job at Little Mountain to kind of get your foot in the door over there, yeah. and, um, that's, uh, that place is so historically amazing because, you know, so many amazing records came out, but also you and Bruce Fairbairn and R- Bob Rock all came out of that place, so, yeah. um, that uh the early days of that and it says the first thing on your credits list is the prism record young and restless um what i mean what was it like at that those early days of of kind of you know earning your keep and, and getting your foot in the door was it was it a slog to get you know kind of get your foot in the door and and gain respect among the other people working there
3: uh it didn't seem like it you know i was young i think i was 18 when i started there mm-hmm. and uh you know it's just uh, such a thrill to be working at a studio. You know, it was a pain in, in the butt to drive that hour in in the morning and start at five a.m. to do my janitor duties. But you know, hey, I was it was awesome. And then uh, sometimes I'd show up there at five a.m. and and uh, some of the other uh, rooms were still had people left over from the night before, just kind of finishing up, and ashtrays just piled with ashes and smoke lingering and all that stuff.
4: So, <laughs> Um, you
3: know, yeah, and then during the day, uh, the student at the time was primarily a jingle house, so uh, that was the owners and, and most of the staff there were, that's what they do, so they'd record jingles all day, and, and basically the doors kind of got locked at five or six o'clock, so uh, after my janitor duties, you know, about eight or nine o'clock, then I'd start helping some of the engineers setting up microphones and, and stuff, getting ready for the jingle duties, so then I'd... Sort of learned you know what different microphones were, watch these guys record jingles, and uh, so at the time bob rock was a was an assistant engineer, so he was you know working a lot of these too, and at night he would come in and, and be recording a lot of the uh, the Vancouver punk punk rock band, so he'd you know come in after six or seven because he could get free studio time because it was shut down anyways. So I said, "Hey, you know, mind if I come in and uh, give you a hand at night?" And he says, "Ah, sure, if you're if you're into it." So uh, I did that for a while, uh, probably about a year and a half. So because of my hours, um, I had to sleep in a sleeping bag in the loading bay. Because wow. so, I had to do my janitor from five to nine, the jingle stuff from nine to six, and then Bob and I'd hang out there till two or three in the morning. So um, that's how we got going. And then Bruce Fairburn was floating around so uh, the first record bob and bruce did was um together was uh one called armageddon with prism and that was one of bruce's first productions one of bob's first engineering jobs and i was still janitoring so i'd pop in and, and help out but i didn't get the uh like an assistant credit on that but it was mm-hmm. quickly after that me and bob and bruce like formed a team because we just worked so good together and and uh so that's really what started that nucleus. And, you know, with Bruce's talents and Bob's talents, you know, they started attracting better bands. Like, uh, you know, the first sort of big one they did together was Lover Boy. And then uh, that did fairly good down the States. So it uh, got the attention of John Bon Jovi. And then that got the attention of Steven Tyler and Joe Perry. And, you know, it just kind of snowballed from there.
0: Yeah. So. Well, you know Bruce Fairbairn, you know sadly passed away in the. It was at the late '90s, I believe, that he passed. Yeah. Um, so, like, really, the internet hadn't taken off, and Bob Rock, you know, Bob Rock's been interviewed a million times on a million different things, so we kind of have a feel for what he was like as a person. But there's not a lot known about Bruce Fairbairn, like as a person. Was he kind of was he a taskmaster in the studio? Was he a laid back guy? What kind of a guy was Bruce? Well, he was pretty laid
3: back guy, but he was very. Uh, like super organized you know he was very easy going but you know he'd come in every morning or every you know start time um uh totally knew exactly what he wanted to achieve that day and and you know at what time like you know say uh okay it's time to put a guitar solo on this song we all set up and guy'd start playing and and if he was kind of writing his solo as he went bruce would kind of go with it but you know, we got to a point of being, you know, an hour or two, Bruce says, look, go back to your room or the hotel or whatever, come up with something there, and then let's do this tomorrow or later tonight. He says, we got to move on. So he always kept things moving. So I think Bruce was never over budget. I think he was always under budget on his records, money and time wise. He just, you know, liked to keep things going. You know, he's totally into people getting creative and, and all that, but he didn't like wasting time. So he was mm. very much a taskmaster, but done in a nice way, if you know what I mean. Gotcha. <laughs> he was a super family guy, too. He'd uh, he'd come in, you know, we'd start usually about 11 or so. He'd come in, and then he'd go home at 5 uh, to make uh, dinner for the family. And then, you know, a couple times a week, uh, he coached his son's soccer team. So sometimes he wouldn't come back till eight or nine at night, you know, so he'd give us tasks. Okay. Well, I'm gone. Can you, uh, you know, put together a vocal track or comp that, uh, guitar solo or, you know, something like that. So, you know, he always had us working, but he was very much a, a great balance between home life and studio. I'm
1: mm-hmm. still a little blown away that this all begins with the young producer, the young engineer and the janitor.
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, that's right? awesome. <laughs> You know, in
3: a funny way, like Vancouver's, you know, basically such a young town. So, you know, we were competing with, you know, records being done in Toronto, uh, New York, Nashville, Los Angeles, uh, you know, all over the world. And being such a young town, we never had the the big old radio stations that all the cool mics came from. We never had uh, gear suppliers. So we're, you know, pretty much... We didn't really have much in the way of outboard gear, and I'm not sure we were really aware of that until you know we started competing with sort of the international artists, and you know making our records kick ass just was a lot of work. And then if you'd go down to L.A. to you know do something in a studio there, you'd you'd walk around with your your jaw on the floor, going, "Wow, look at all the stuff they got! No wonder their records sound that like that." And you know we're always trying to think of tricks to. How did they do that? Oh, maybe they, you know, shot a signal out to the loading bay and back here, and then little did we realize they had a an echo chamber or something. You know what I mean? (laughs) Wow! I think the three of us just worked really hard at what we had to do, and then that, I guess, just gelled us together to to compete uh, internationally uh, without us even knowing it.
0: You know? Right. (laughs)
3: That's awesome
0: the um well you know you mentioned aerosmith with permanent vacation so the three of you worked on that record and uh that uh you know which some people thought done with mirrors was the comeback record but i mean permanent vacation was the one that kind of blew the doors off and really brought that band back so yeah. when when those guys were in there doing the record i mean they were they were not really kind of at a great point in, in their lives was it a uh, was it a happy time to make that record or was there a lot of struggle to make that one
3: Oh, it was a totally happy time. Uh, from what I remember, I think they were at that point six months sober. Yeah. Uh, they were just overjoyed, you know, and, and Bruce was a, a real easy guy to work with. He was always up and happy, and so there was never any heavy moments. Um, and I remember, you know, Stephen saying, hey, this is the first record we've ever done where I actually remember what we're doing on it. He says, you know, a lot of the past records, he says, we were just so wasted that, uh, yeah, we wouldn't really know what happened on the record until we got the record, wow. the finished record. You know, he said sometimes he'd throw pillows down on the floor and I'd lie down on these pillows and they'd position a, knife, a mic over me and they said, "Well, when you hear music in your headphones, sing. When you don't hear anything, don't sing." So he
4: says, <laughs> <laughs> he
3: says it's just so great to be uh, sober and and part of this moment. So that they had a blast doing that record.
0: That's cool. I bet. Yeah. Oh but yeah we had um we talked to Desmond Child a couple of years ago and he talked about a little bit about the making of some of the songs on this one and he uh he mentioned there being a lot of strife between uh Steven Tyler and Joe Perry with the song Angel because it was so outside the box for what Aerosmith had done before and Joe was just not having it and yeah. uh that he eventually got on board was, was any of the writing with Desmond done during that time or was all that stuff done by the time you worked on it
2: Uh, A
3: lot of it was pre-done, I know, but I I do know that while we'd be working on some songs, you know, they'd say, hey, we need another radio song or whatever, and and there'd be writing going on in the background, you know, um, whether Diane Warren or Desmond Child or or Jim Valance or whatever, so uh, I never witnessed any of that. It was usually the writers would do it down in L.A. or wherever they were living, and it would be... Uh, kind of fedEx back and forth because again there's no internet back then, so it's a <laughs> slow mail uh, or uh if they could take a weekend off you know Stephen and Joe would fly down or or whatever, but uh any
0: songwriting was done outside of the studio, right okay and steven tyler's listed as lead vocals piano harmonica organ and plunger mute what the hell is a plunger mute
2: (laughs) well uh actually steven and i did
3: those on one of the songs and it's kind of a a mouth percussion thing it's sort of like a so it ends up like hand claps but it's uh just me and steven going (laughs) (laughs) wow i think we also got flesh bogos on there too uh (laughs) I'll let imagination
0: figure out what those are. Uh, I I don't know that I want to imagine what those are. Oh, man.
1: Um, Something I was wondering, because I'm a big fan of Motley Crue. I'm a big fan of the uh, Supersonic Demonic Relics album that came out. I think any time one of my favorite bands releases an album of demos from back in their earlier days to be heard for the first time ever i just love that stuff and listening to that there's some strange things on there like mood ring and i was wondering with with something like that where it's like a re-release of unreleased music do you get like a box of reels and they say do the best you can with this or how does that work
3: basically they go through archives and and they just pull out stuff that was was mixed um you know, the records I've done with the ACDCs, there were, you know, a few extra songs, but we would take them far because the band go, okay, if they're not good enough to finish and they're not going to make the record, then they just put them in the shelf. So there's not too many like that. But, you know, with Motley crew, I'm sure they just, you know, always kept recording, 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 and then do, you know, 16 songs and put 10 on the record and there's six left over. So I'm sure, you know, Tommy and, and, uh, and then probably went through their vaults and said, "Hey yeah, let's do this, and let's throw that on there and that's cool and uh, I guess I've never been involved in it uh, okay. I've never had to go back and and hey, let's mix these old demo tapes uh, because usually they're already mixed at the point where the band uh let them go, you know, so
1: gotcha mm-hmm. yeah. I guess I thought I saw on your uh website that you had something to do with that album. Well, I'm not. Is that the John Curabi record? Yeah, that was the one. It had some of the Quaternary songs on there, and then yeah. it had a couple of weird old crew songs with Vince Neil on them.
3: Yeah, you know what? Um, all I remember on that record is
1: it's like '99.
3: You know, the yeah. And then I was asked to come in and and do guitars with with Mick
4: ah, because okay. we were
3: having a time getting a sound, so hung out with Mick doing that. And funny side story in that. Um, we're doing it at Tommy's studio in his house, and uh, go there every day and and uh, see Tommy and Pam all hanging out and stuff. And uh, one one day, I pulled into the driveway and Tommy's on on the phone and he is just yelling and screaming and throwing things and and just so oh weird. So we went in and we started working and talking. He's just in a foul mood. So we found out that his I guess longtime carpenter friend, whatever you know, worked with him on this place or whatever yeah. for three years, uh, had gotten in and stolen two of his safes out of his, you know, bedroom closet or oh, whatever. Shit. And out of that was where the this, those sex tapes were leaked.
4: Ah.
0: I, I remember that story. I remember when I'm uh, hearing about the safe getting stolen. Wow. Uh, yeah. Well, so I guess at that point it had just
3: been stolen. and Maybe this guy was trying to ransom it back or something. And <laughs> it was just, fuck you. But oh uh, man, yeah, so anyways, that's where we're doing the gu- guitars, and then, uh, after we got a bunch of the guitars done, you know, I can't even remember how many songs, maybe four or five songs, like we're just doing little chunks at a time, and then I remember doing uh, a bunch of vocals with John, right. and uh you know he was awesome he was what a great singer uh he is it's just you know sometimes a band has a nucleus of people that uh it doesn't work without that nucleus, you know, if you know what I mean. Right. And I think that's just what happened with John. I mean, he just did a killer, killer job in that, but he wasn't, uh, you know, the personification of Vince Neil, you know, and that's just what completes that thing. It's sort of like Aerosmith without Steven Tyler. Like, how how do you do that? (laughs) Yeah.
1: In your opinion, do you think if Motley Crue would have changed the name of the band when John Karabi joined up, do you think they would have done better?
3: not necessarily uh in those days you know maybe nowadays uh fans are a little bit more open to it but you know basically everybody would say well that's just basically motley crew with a different singer yeah. you know and uh you know you build up such a name with your band that it it helps grease the wheels to you know get bigger venues and and sell more because of the name and True. you know people can forgive that there's different members mm-hmm. in the band i mean it you know, it worked when Bond died and Brian took over. Uh, so sometimes it works, but sometimes that nucleus is just disrupted too much that it's just not the same band. And I think if they called it something different, then well, basically you just sort of go back and you got to start over again and kind of build that name.
1: Right. It's a damn yeah. shame too because that John Karabi Motley Crew stuff was awesome.
0: Yeah, it was. It was really good. He kicked ass. Yeah. Yeah we we love that record. We had. We had a uh, in-person interview with John at a bar in East Nashville, and just to talk about the making of that record. And we were there for three hours, and it was one of the most fun talks we've ever had. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right on, yeah, yeah.
3: Never talk to him again. Tell him hi. Uh, I, I will. Seen or talked to him since since we the yeah, records. So. Yeah, he's
0: down here in Nashville also. Oh, right on.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah he did uh. a a good stint with the Dead Daisies for a while, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, and then they got Glenn Hughes, and it sounds like a Glenn Hughes band. But anyway, um, <laughs> yeah, uh, not that I don't love Glenn Hughes.
1: Yeah, it's just any band but, Glenn Hughes is in becomes Glenn Hughes.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but well, with Aerosmith, to get back to them, like, so you did Permanent Vacation, and then they came back with you guys with Pump. Mm-hmm. Uh, was it a was it a much different environment, or it was more just like, hey, the train's rolling, let's just keep doing what we did last time.
3: It was de- definitely the trains rolling. Let's just do what we did last time. Um, but it was a little bit different in that, um, you know, they had now done a whole tour on the road, newly sober, and they really got involved in like the 12 step program. Mm-hmm. So I remember everybody sort of having a uh, what do you call a counselor, I guess. So if there's a decision to be made, they'd kind of all go into separate. Area rooms, talk with their counselor, blah, blah blah. Then they'd all come back as a team and form an opinion, and then do that. And, wow. and I'm exaggerating just to for you know to give you an example, but it was very kind of a bit of a strange record. it wasn't as fun. I mean, it was it was definitely a great record to make, and we did a lot of really fun, cool stuff on it. But uh, it started to feel a little bit more a heavier vibe around the whole thing than, than about Perma vacation mm-hmm. was kind of like your, your first day at grade eight, first day in <laughs> high school, you know, and now this is like your grade 10 and you think you're pretty cool. And, <laughs> 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 and you can beat up on the great eighters.
0: You know? yeah. <laughs> like, <clears throat> wasn't that when Tim Collins was managing them at the time? And, yeah. uh, and, and like that, if you've ever read the walk this way biography, um, Boy, though, the relationship with him was a kind of a double edged sword from what I remember reading because you know he definitely helped get them back on track because they were falling apart before that he got involved and but then it became i remember they said we you know he tim wanted to have a meeting about every single idea and every you know if you if you, if you felt one way or another about it you had to have a meeting or you had to go back into treatment and um but uh yeah i didn't know if there if there was drama with him being involved at that that time
3: that was probably what it was uh you know I met. Him a bunch of times and he seemed like a nice guy, but but again, all that kind of management stuff is all uh behind the scenes to me. You know, when we're at the studio, uh, you know, Bruce didn't like any kind of heavy thing going on. I mean, sure, sometimes things happen, but you know, any those heavy meetings, okay, go down to the office or go to the hotel, whatever, and and you guys talk at the you know, the studio's for creatives, studio's got to be the free zone, no egos, no fights. You know, let's keep it clean. So, you know, you never you'd you, you feel the background of it, but it would never actually be physically going on in the studio. Right.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: There's a uh, there's something on your credits list that I'm trying to figure out because I, Aaron and I are both really into Poison and it's got something called "Not a Pretty Sight," but I don't know what that is.
3: Uh, was that a live record?
0: Oh, it was. I thought that was called "Swallow This Live." sure
3: (laughs) i don't know you know (laughs) most of the time when i work on stuff it's you know sometimes even the songs aren't named so uh, okay rarely would the record get its name until i'm on to the next one so you know that's why i have a hard time remembering what what the record's called (laughs) right so um i'm not sure what that would be and you know if that's on all music uh they mostly get it right but sometimes i go on there and i'm like what? I'm not an accordion player. <laughs> that song. So I'm not sure what that is. I haven't,
2: uh, I haven't
1: oh, looked man. Up. That's wild. Oh. Yeah, man. Through your whole discography here, it's it's massive. You've worked with and on albums that have sold millions, and you've worked with bands that never really broke big. Was there ever anybody that you worked with that you thought, man, this is going to be huge? That just never went anywhere? Is there one that you're amazed that didn't make it more than the rest?
3: Well, there's there's two that I'm, to this day, amazed that never make it. Uh, first one was a thing called the Dan Reed Network. Uh-huh. Yeah. uh He was out of Portland, Oregon. Uh, Bruce did the record, and it was amazing. It was, like, one of the funnest records I've worked on. Uh, you know, at one point, me and Dan stayed at, towards the end of the record, and, and back then, you know, extended... The mixes, you know, if you have a three or four minute song, sometimes you can extend it to like ten or twelve minutes. They're called dub mixes, you know, more for dance clubs and stuff. Yeah. So I think there's three or four songs we stayed and did club dance dub song dub mixes of these things, and we worked for six days straight, no sleep, no drugs. I mean, caffeine and nicotine, and that was it, straight straight through. And it got to the point that you get. Like you're not tired anymore. You're euphoric, and all of a sudden it's, it's daylight out. The the day staff is at the studio, and then next time you go up to the bathroom, it's dark and nobody's around, and it just turned into this weird, weird thing. So then we finally finished it, and we said, okay, well let's let's just see how how long we could stay up for. And I think I I barely made the drive, an hour drive home, in a nice warm sunny day. and barely got home, and I just crashed, and I thought I'd sleep for like two weeks, but. You know, six hours later, I was awake and feeling fine. So that was a great record. <laughs> and they're, they're really, um, they were really, they were like funk rock, you know? Right. Um, but I think they, they hit between the, a big crack where the, the funk fans thought it was too rock, and the rock fans thought it was too funk. Hmm.
4: Yeah. And then
3: like uh, six or whatever months later, uh, Living Color came out. Oh.
4: <laughs>
3: there you go. So they, they had just missed it, but it was you know, they had Derek Shulman uh, was one of the big A&R guys, uh, signed them to this huge deal. They had, uh, oh, shoot, I lost his name. now big manager uh, in San Francisco, died in a helicopter crash. Uh, oh,
0: Bill Graham? Yeah. Bill
3: Graham was managing them. Bruce Fairburn uh, produced a record. I mean, it was just everything was lining up going click, 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 click. Uh, I think they got booked. For uh, opening for the Rolling Stone or some big thing for the album launch, and just as the album came out, Derek Schulman uh, changed job, moved moved uh, positions, so another A&R guy came in, and I guess, you know, decided, well, this isn't my record, so I'm just gonna, uh, you know, kind of shelve this, and uh, you know, we'll do the next record, kind of thing. Well, nothing ever came of it. But everybody I know that listened to that record just said, "Oh my God, I can't believe this didn't do anything." You know, so that was the Dan Reed network. What's the and other one?
0: The other one was uh, Blue Murder.
1: Yeah,
3: I
0: was just going to ask you about that one.
1: Yeah, for sure. I agree. I agree. Oh, man, I agree. That was a
3: killer record.
1: Yes. And, uh, oh yeah.
3: I really don't know what happened on that one. What? Who dropped what ball? But uh, you know, to this day, there's still be some you know bars. I'll go to down the states and. That still have the jukebox, and it's still you know you still hear these blue murder songs cranking out of the jukeboxes,
0: and everybody's like, "Oh man, that, that was
3: my favorite record."
0: I'm thinking, "Well, why didn't you go buy it then?" <laughs> <Right. you> know, <laughs> I, I will admit, I will say I bought it for sure. Yeah, I love me that too. Record. Both of them. Yeah. Oh, and there's um, and like yeah, it's like like well before I forget about it, um, there's uh have you heard of a Swedish band called Eclipse? You know what, I have heard of them,
3: uh, but I couldn't name you a song.
0: Well, there's a, and I'll send you a link when we get done. Um, there's a song that they do, I can't remember the title right offhand, but they literally, it's a, it's more of an homage, because the singer admitted in an interview, but the intro to the song, it's called Breakdown, mm-hmm. is the exact same intro to Jelly Roll.
4: Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah,
0: and he said he loved that record so much that he wanted to kind of give a tip of the hat to John Sykes with that. Oh, killer. Killer. Yeah. Well, yeah, like, I mean, John Sykes, Tony Franklin, and Carmine apiece. You can't get three better players than that. Right. Oh, oh, what a power trail, man. And what a,
3: what a huge sound they had for three guys, you know? So, yeah. Uh,
0: John Sykes is such so a mystery. Like, I mean, he's uh, he doesn't do a lot of interviews. He's just kind of quiet. Like, have you? Did you stay in touch with him after those days?
3: Uh, for a while, we did a, another record. Uh, uh,
0: what was that? I think it was his son that
3: was on the cover of. Uh, uh, Oh, nothing but trouble. Yeah, trouble. Yeah, Uh, I only mixed that one. Um, And we kind of stayed in touch, but we really sort of lost touch over the years. Uh, Probably a year or two ago, I think we reconnected uh, through email, which again we didn't have back in those days. And uh, I think he was putting together some new music, and we sort of went back and forth, and then just kind of stopped communicating again. You know, just right. Sometimes life gets in the way or whatever, so I'm not sure what he's doing. I know I had reached out to him once before too. Uh, there's a band I was working with, and I thought they could use uh, some John Sykes songwriting help. And, yeah,
0: uh, he didn't really seem too eager to co-write things. Yeah, he he just sort of he disappears off the grid for long periods of time. You know, yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah. But he's so freaking talented. I, I love it I love what he did with Tigers of Pantang and then Lizzie and Blue Murder and and obviously, you know, he did so much for Whitesnake that he never gets credit for. Yeah. Um, you know, he but he's an amazing player and writer. I love that guy.
3: Yeah. Well that's where I met him was on the Whitesnake record.
0: Yeah, well you you're listed on here for Children of the Night. Did you only work on that one song? No, I did the whole
3: record, but a guy named Mike Stone produced and engineered it. So that was right at sort of the tail end of my assisting uh, years. So I was the assistant engineer on that record. So did the whole record with, with Mike and John. Uh, and then David came in to sing and lost his voice. And, uh, you know, I guess just the wet, damp climate here in Canada or in Vancouver, he's just not into. So he went down to L.A. or florida i think for a bit and then ended up in la and then uh mike stone and, and john and him had a falling out so mm. he ended up doing all the vocals and some more guitars with um
0: well that record has a massive sound too i love yeah. that record yeah
3: <laughs> yeah well that was mike stone man what an amazing guy he was so he did a lot of the uh the queen records uh mm. his big kind of claim to fame english
2: guy He was great that is cool so
0: man. uh you did um, you did a couple of great records with the cult with Sonic Temple and Ceremony. What was yes. it like working with those guys?
3: Well, oh, man, I love those guys. Uh, you know, because Ian's Canadian too, so him and I just uh, just really hit it off. And uh, it, you know, like so many of those great bands, especially back then, it seemed like it was a collision of personalities that really made the band sort of, you know, Steve pilot Joe Perry and. And you know Billy Duffy and 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 Ian, you know, because Ian was very much a sort of like more the underground, you know, alternative kind of thing, and and Billy just wanted to be, you know, a guitar player in a massive, successful radio band kind of kind of thing too. Yeah, yeah. And so sort the of collision of those uh, energies that create something really cool, because you know one half, you know. Billy's pulling it one way and Ian's always pulling it back into the the other way and it just was cool so it was really fun working on something like that and especially when, when Button Heads was always a, a friendly way like there's never any fights or yelling matches or anything it was a, a friendly like you know uh, <laughs> I don't know just try to get pull, pull it into a different genre and it was a, a great tug of war and you know it was a fun record to do
1: yeah it's it's like you say it's perfect because like you got the one guy pulling one way another guy pulling the other way and where it lands in the middle is perfect for what they're doing at the time and that must have been awesome with them too because they're right you know when you start out with uh ceremony they're on their way up and then sonic temple is the one that really does it for them
3: yeah yep exactly and when we're recording sonic temple and here vancouver uh I remember they did a song called The River, and it was basically a song about Vietnam. So it was a really kind of a vibey song, and I think it actually ended up being eight or ten minutes long. But when we went to track it, we were just all about, hey, let's get we got to get the vibe right when we track this. And So we did it sort of late, late at night. And uh, because we were at Little Mountain, you know, it was a jingle place, so our main track room had a big almost fit the whole wall, a big uh, projector screen, so that when they were doing movie scores and all that, you know, they'd project the movie on there, et cetera. So so we we went out and rented uh, Apocalypse Now and uh, got about 200 candles and filled all the uh, space and on top of gear, uh, you know, the amps and stuff, all these candles and lit that, killed all the lights and had this movie on repeat, just the lights going while they tracked the song, and it oh, wow. was well, it was the most coolest vibe ever. Um, thinking in hindsight, nobody got a picture of that, or it wasn't recorded, it's just in my mind's eye. But, you know, that, that song never made the record, but I believe it came out in in some package somewhere, though I have yet to hear it since we finished doing it and mixing it, so it's a song called The River, so I don't know if you guys can dig it up and find out but boy it was it was something special
1: <laughs> hmm. i wonder if that well, ended up on that rare cult cd that came out a couple of years ago it might have might have yeah i'll have to check into that i know i got it.
0: <clears throat> there's one uh thing on your and i know you only mixed it but it, in 91 you did the south gang tainted angel record oh yeah <laughs> That's yeah a
4: good one. and,
0: and the, the, this is it's I'm a fan of Butch Walker solo, but I love South Gang. Yeah. And, I, and Butch never wants to talk about South Gang because I guess he views it as cheesy or whatever. But I thought that band had a lot of promise. And obviously oh. it came out in 91, and basically the parade was over by the time they showed up. But, I mean, what do you remember about making that record? Uh,
3: hmm. <laughs> not, not a lot, to be honest. Oh, really? <laughs> I remember the name. Um, You know, sometimes, especially if I'm mixing, you, you don't really get you know get to know them you yeah. set into it like you just sit there and mix a song oh that was cool hey that was fun you have your high fives and then you move on so you know we're looking at is that 20 years ago 30 years ago now I don't yeah know. 30 yeah 30 yeah <laughs> uh, but definitely remember the guys remember the name um, they were from Georgia or something yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah 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 and I've always had a thing for southern rock bands it's just uh, I just love it you know like drive-by truckers and all that kind of stuff i just love the, the southern rock thing so yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. that south gang's a good guitar album It yeah. is. yeah 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 even though butch
0: butch will never talk about it but uh, the it's a it, it, they were a good band it's just they were just too late to the game at that point you know yeah well that's when
3: grunge was taken over or whatever and it's just you know things just got a little bit different
0: <laughs> well I, I did want to ask about coverdale page because uh I remember when this came out in '93. I was in high school, and it was because like that was in the middle of the the grunge explosion. So it was all these newer bands doing depressed music. But I remember Coverdale Page came out, and that was a huge hit. Like even amongst you know kids that were grunge kids, it kind of transcended what was big at the time. Uh, That must have been an honor to work on that record.
3: Oh man, that was great. Especially you know
0: to to work with
3: Jimmy was. Kind of a dream come true. And then, you know, then he asked me to like co produce it with me, with him. And I'm like, oh my God, you know, how am I supposed to tell, you know, my <laughs> my childhood hero, uh, yeah, no, Jimmy, uh, you're not playing that quite right. <laughs> you know, there's <Wow. laughs> a bit it, like if I was ever starstruck, which I'd never
0: get with musicians, but uh, it was close with Jimmy. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. I bet you do have a lot of stories about the making of that one. Yeah, we had some good times. For sure. Maybe that would be a good one to come back and talk about the making of, if you're up for it. Me is too. He's such a nice guy.
1: Yeah. yeah. You know, a minute ago we were talking about Self Gang and how the grunge thing came in and changed everything for bands like that. Did the change in the atmosphere of rock and roll in the early 90s, did that affect you at all? Well,
3: probably a little bit because you know just through default, you know I guess uh, you know Bruce, Bob, and I had sort of you know been doing all the kind of '80s hair bands, you know, and that's you know whatever you've done last tends to be the next thing that somebody comes to, to ask you to do, right? So it it put a a bit of a hole in the schedule for a bit because also like it just died; it didn't sort of ebb away. It was like one second everybody's got their hair fluff to three feet wide and makeup on to you know, greasy hair and <laughs> dirty jeans and t-shirts and um, so it's a bit of an adjustment but you know, speaking for myself and I guess with, with Bob it's like, you know, we're, we just love doing music, it doesn't matter what genre it's in it's like music, it's music, you know like I've done a fair bit of country stuff and um, not Classical, in a sense, but you know, more more along those lines. I remember getting a phone call once to my management, and then they asked, "Well, does Mike know how to record a piano?" For no. <laughs> <It's like, no. laughs> engineers, just because we do all this heavy heavy music doesn't mean we can't record and appreciate other other genres of music. You know, so um, yeah, yeah it, was, it, it changed the face of music for sure. Uh, it changed how records were being done, uh, also, in, in their in the grunge thing, that was sort of more alternate music, so so the budgets were really small, so that changed too. So no longer were the half million dollar budgets and taking, you know, eight weeks to do a record, it's like, oh no, gotta get in and out and do it in in two weeks kind of thing. And, you know, so it changed a lot of things. Uh you know, it's funny now in retrospect, you know, you get some of those old band Wasp and and people are redoing some of the songs, and then you really realize what great songs they were. Even oh, if you didn't sure. agree with the that genre once it was out of favor, then you listen to the songs. and like, Yeah, but check the songs out. Like, they're awesome.
1: <laughs> so- yeah, so many of those bands from that era that were still trying to come out with albums, even though they weren't selling, some of those albums, even though nobody's ever heard them, are some of the best stuff those bands ever did.
3: Yeah, yeah. And uh you know, some of the remakes make it even cooler, but you know, it's funny, once a, a certain genre goes out of favor with the, the uh majority of people then then everybody seems to stomp on and say, Oh what? Oh eighties, oh I hate that stuff. Well you don't really hate <laughs> the idea of it not being cool anymore, but it's still great stuff. <laughs> Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Let me give a, a shout-out to Richie and Scott from uh, Focus on Metal because they've done an amazing series on the Dio Strange Highways record, which oh. I'm not even going to try to top. But oh, uh, you uh, you did a great job on that. And that album is so unsung, and it's yeah. a great part of his solo catalog. Um, I have to imagine working with Ronnie James Dio must have been a lot of fun. Oh, man, it was
3: great. Um, and, you know, he would kind of... Uh, kind of let us like you know when me and Vinny so carmine's brother was a drummer on that first time i met Vinny so that was great and so he'd sort of let us kind of do our thing and then he'd come in you know he'd be wandering in and out of the room but you know he wasn't always there agonizing over everything he kind of let us all do our thing and then he'd come in and and sing uh so pretty easygoing guy like you know if he had a Uh, Something that was bugging him about a song, you know, he'd really dive in and and become a bit of a bee in your bonnet. But (laughs) uh, generally, a really great guy, and and, uh, we we remained pretty good friends for a number of years after we finished that record. So that's uh, great. Really miss that guy
0: if i were in your position i would probably just sit for hours and listen to isolated vocals of ronnie james dio just, what what a voice
3: that sounds like work to me pal No, I, I, to you
0: it does yeah
3: hey i don't i don't even have a radio in my house when I, get up, I i have no music on
0: i get it it's a job it's a, i love it though but yeah no i need some
1: peace and quiet so
0: I... Aaron, are you, are you going to ask about Jackal and Vince Neal? Because I know you love both of those.
1: Well, of course I'm going to ask about those bands, man. I love Jackal, but I'm really curious about the Vince Neal album, Carved in Stone, man. That's, that album was far out, especially for Vince Neal.
3: Yeah, well, um, again, I don't know too much about that album, unfortunately, uh, because I only mixed it. Uh, but I remember it being, being great. I went down to L.A. to mix it. And uh you know Vince and I are pretty good friends he's he's crazy, but um it was just cool that he you know he was kind of doing his own thing and sort of breaking out of the molly thing for a bit because it just always seemed like he was just okay you know Vince you just go up there and sing and we'll do the rest of it kind of thing and so it was just neat to see him uh going out uh I remember really liking a lot of the tunes in that that uh that record uh but during, while we are mixing it was uh was some crazy rainstorms in in LA where the the river or the you know the canal or whatever it is now flooded and there's actually people dying and falling into this thing Dang. and um, <laughs> this has a place out in in Malibu well there's a, a slide and a flood and all that anyways he was basically stranded on this property and there's a, a few him and his, a few of his neighbors and they had to <laughs> send helicopters in to, to get them out of there oh, wow. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, uh, He didn't, you know, we were supposed to come in and approve a mix and didn't show up and I couldn't get him on the phone and whatever it was later on that night or whatever. Freeze why? you wouldn't believe what happened to me. It's only to me.
1: <laughs> that's wild, yeah. That album was so weird. It was so different from anything that he had done in Motley Crue, but it was really cool for what it was and unique as hell.
3: Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, again, I, I like when guys can kind of break from their, their normal day job and thing and then show their their creative, creativity because, you know, it wouldn't be something that uh, would have flown. Like, you know, I know a lot of bands that, you know, there's, there's the one or two main writers, but the other guys write, too. It's just not songs that fit the band. So then they sort of get push down kind of thing. So it's just nice when they can they have an opportunity to be able to break out and, and do the record. Whether it does well or not is beside the point. You just gotta sometimes get that creativity out of
0: you, you know? Yeah. And um we're gonna we're gonna go to some listener questions if you have some extra time in a minute. I I, I do wanna I do want to touch on ACDC um, because you've worked on several records of theirs, and, and some of the listener questions involve ACDC dc But I got a follow-up on um, you in a, the interview with the Australian guy. He asked you, and I'm going to press you. Also, there was rumors that ACDC had gone back into recording in Vancouver like a year ago with Brian. Is there anything you can share on that? Like, is there a record coming? Do you know anything? <laughs> I think we've got a bad line
4: here. <laughs> no,
3: you know what? I can't. I can't say anything about that.
0: Well, so I'm gonna take that as a yes.
1: Yeah. Well, <laughs> if, if you do happen to see them, you just let them know we're ready for a new album. If whenever they are, just let us know. Yeah. That's true. yeah. <laughs> That's funny.
0: (laughs) I I had to ask. I'm sorry, but I had to. That's okay. So, Aaron, you want to go to some Lister questions?
1: Yeah, because there's some really, really awesome questions in here that people have asked, and these are really good. Um, I guess I'll start right at the top. Steven Kirsch, he sounds like he might be a little biased, but he's wondering, do you have any great stories about Thunder, one of the greatest bands that never broke in America? Is there currently a better singer than Danny Bowes?
3: Man, those guys, well, remain and, and still are very good friends to this day. But uh went over there to work on a uh, the first record Backstreet Symphony and uh with Andy Taylor producing. So we went out to this uh big manor house out in the middle of nowhere and uh sort of camped out there and what a time we had uh You know, not only was the music great, the playing was great, but we'd stop for dinner. You know, we had a a chef in the manor house that would cook us dinner, you know, just basic dinners. And then after dinner, we'd sort of have a little bit of a quiet time during the summer. And then so these guys started teaching me how to play uh, cricket. So we'd have a cricket match out in the the grounds of this manor house. We'd have, you know, an hour or so playing cricket and getting some exercise and back in and and working. And then because we're so far away from – towns and you know you can't really drink and drive so we started our own pub in the basement of this manor house that you know during the week well it was just us you know guys in the band and, and uh, studio the, the people but then on the weekends they'd get all these people up from london i think it was a two or three hour drive from london so the weekends would just kick off there and we just had so much fun and i think it, that ends up getting on the record that record sounds like it's a lot of fun And uh, answering the Danny question, you know, Danny has got such a great voice. I mean, he's he's still got it, too, you know, uh, all these years later. uh, He's still got that pure tone to his voice, his his notes, and, uh, you know, yeah, there's no better singer than Danny.
1: Yeah, he's awesome, for sure. All right, Al Horta, he says, you worked on mixes for a few Rush Live DVDs. Was it difficult to mix a band like Rush because their music is so dense? And what do you think of the music of Rush?
3: Well, uh, Rush was one of my first uh, musical crushes back when I was still in high school. Uh, I remember going out and seeing them in their early years. Like they were one of the hardest working Canadian bands ever. Mm -hmm. They would play. uh, They'd come across Canada playing every little place they could get into and then they'd tour all the way hitting every, all the places all the way back to the east coast again uh any time of the year it, they're an awesome band uh, so i've been a huge rush fan for years um and mixing them was a was a, a thrill you know i've been so blessed in my time to uh, been able to work with uh, probably most of my sort of childhood heroes and th- them being one of them um uh, I, I don't find them dis- difficult to mix. I mean, they're, they're a three-piece, so, you know, everything's sort of got its place. You know, I mean, for sure, when things get dense and fast and different time signatures, uh, it, there can be complications to mixing it, but I wouldn't say difficult, and especially when you're into the music, you just kind of get into this trance and go with it. So, uh, no, it was, it was always a blast working with them.
1: That's cool. i got to imagine, like you said, you know, it's got to be an extra – thrill for you when you are a pre fan of the band you're about to be working with what's it like when you've got to mix an album of music that you just don't understand
3: well uh it it does make it a little bit harder but um again it's uh, my approach to music is like you know when when i get a song to mix especially if i haven't heard it before i ask them to sort of send a rough mix of it or whatever and i sit and listen to that for about half an hour and then i pull up all the tracks really quickly onto the board and then again have a listen. And, you know, you try and find what what is the soul of this song, like, you know, like you said earlier, like, you know, is it vocals? Is it based in these riffs? Is it that? And you try and figure that out and then it just, again, I, I do kind of go into a bit of a trance and, you know, I don't overthink things. I just kind of react to what oh, that's cool and that's cool and you know, every once in a while, when I send the the reference mix off to the band to for them to check out, they'll uh they'll say, "Oh, oh, that guitar part, oh, that shouldn't be that loud. That we, we're not even sure we're using that. It should be this." So sometimes I totally miss <laughs> miss the vibe on it. But like, if I hear something cool, I'm like, "Oh, I love that!" And oh, that works great with great with the bass and the vocals sit great on that. And sometimes <laughs> sometimes you miss it, but. um I, you know, you just get into the music, and music's, every genre of music's great, so, you know, even if it's not one of my personal favorites, I can still get into it. When I'm working with bands like, you know, even with the Aerosmiths and, and that, like, uh, my favorite songs are usually the songs that end up on on side B, uh, and I, I rarely like the singles yeah. until the singles get played on the radio a lot, and then I'm like, oh, okay, I, yeah, I get why everybody likes that, but while we're doing it, uh, I, I like the sort of quirkier, deeper cuts than the than the obvious singles. Personally,
0: one of one of us, one yeah, of us. I can
3: right dig right that. On. <laughs> yeah, well, back <laughs> when we used to buy vinyl, you know, I'd get a new record of my, my favorite band, and like you know, really anticipating to hear it. And I'd throw on side two first. I wouldn't even listen yeah, to side yeah. until <laughs> side
1: <on> hey <laughs> Amen. I hear you, brother. That's cool. <laughs>
3: Or forty five, <laughs> you remember forty fives you get oh, yeah. the single yes. I flip it over, it was flipping over like the, the side B of forty five because it was never even on a, a record or anything. That's the only time you got that song, and there's some that you're going, What the hell? And some are like, Wow, oh, this is awesome. Yeah.
0: yeah.
1: yeah. Deep
0: tracks awesome. are always the best. Yeah, man.
1: <laughs> All right, here's a good one from Dare In. Um it goes let's see, he says what was working with Rick Rubin like for Ballbreaker? And was there talk on trying to achieve the classic dry sound from the Vanda Young produced albums of the 70s?
2: Well, that one was, was an interesting
3: record. Um, I know when I got the call to, to work on that record and they were saying that Rick Rubin was producing it, I thought, oh, this is great because, you know, Rick sort of had a period there. Um, that that was the sound he was going for was ac dc and i thought oh this is gonna be a perfect match but we got into it uh the studio was picked in new york uh, it was a place called the power station and it's known mm-hmm. for big ambient drum sounds and their main ambient room was this big round room and somehow that's where they got booked <laughs> to record this record so we spent six weeks there uh trying to deal with this ambience and taking the ambience out and uh, making it dead. You know, we had a circus tent we brought in and cut, put the drums behind, uh, baffles. We, we took this whole room, and I've got to say, it's probably about sort of a 30-foot-high dome kind of room. Every surface in that, we, we put um, burlap sacks on it, anything to try and make it dead, and nothing worked. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I guess because they had prepaid the studio bill, the studio wouldn't let them out of it. So we had to sit there for six weeks trying to get a sound out. Oh, my God. Um, And then during that time, you know, me and the band would show up at, you know, 11 o'clock, noon. And then Rick would show up about eight or nine at night. (laughs) (laughs) It just got a little bit tense. So finally we packed it all in and moved to L.A., moved it all back to L.A., and started over again uh so it was a difficult record to make um and rick is is quite he's a great guy uh, really good producer but uh it didn't really gel with the the acdc guys i have to say uh you know he's a very hands-off producer and the, and the band want a hands-on producer you know like uh, you know, when he was Rick would show up till night. I'd say to the guys, you know, some point in the afternoon, I say, oh, "Well, look, why don't you guys just bash down a few versions and and uh, you know, play them for Rick when he gets in?" They said, "No, nope, he's the producer. He needs to be here while we're playing." <laughs> so it just that makes sense. Yeah, you know, it didn't really work. So unfortunately,
1: wow. Uh, here's something interesting. Darren's also asking this one. I've never heard this, but apparently it's a myth or a legend. Is it also true that Angus had to record the riff for Thunderstruck with just one string on the guitar? (laughs) No, not true at all. (laughs) I never heard that one before. I haven't
0: heard that one either. Yeah. Yeah,
1: Maybe two strings. No.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that song, the sound of that song is so incredible. Yeah. Yeah, that was fun.
1: Mm. Here's a really good one from Chris Jackson. Can you talk about the movie? the instrumental track at the end of Aerosmith's Permanent Vacation with all the trippy effects on it. It's one of the weirdest songs to ever appear on a big hit album, and I'd love to hear the story behind it.
3: Oh, uh, wow. Well, I'm just trying to think of what was on the end of that. Like, we put so many weird little sound effect things on both those records. Um, I'd have to go back and listen to the song and see Well.
4: It.
1: To trying, be continued. You're, you're trying to tell me <laughs> yeah. you didn't sit down and listen to your full discography before we sat down here today?
0: I tried. Oh, I man. Tried.
3: Well, we did get, you know, Orca Whales in there and all sorts of things. So
1: Yeah, that, yeah, that is weird. Mm. He also wonders, has there ever been a situation where the drummer wanted his drums mixed higher than the bassist wanted more bass, et cetera? I always think of, like, Ronnie James Dio and Tony Iommi alternating telling the mixer what to do. <laughs> uh,
3: that's every band. Yeah.
4: yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> and uh, a friend of mine, uh, another producer friend of mine, uh, we call it uh, the band, you're taking the band around the block. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they come in and oh, the drummer wants a little more drums. Oh, a little more bass from the bass player. The guitar players, they like, oh, go, the guitars are getting a little buried. Vocalists, I can't hear the vocals. So you like, all right, guys, you know, We're gonna do this and it's just all gonna keep coming up, coming up. No, then you gotta do it and all the way and then you you do all the stuff and it just turns into a a freaking mess and then somebody listens and goes, You know what? I like the first mix better. But sometimes you got to take them all around the block to get back to where you were. And say, okay, can we move on now? That's
0: all. Awesome. Well, my, my limited recording experience is a, a band that went nowhere. But I will attest to that. Even unsigned bands that have nowhere to go sure. will also do the same thing to the guy mixing the the album.
4: <laughs> well, you know what's
0: funny to me, and you know, probably because I'm, I'm you know, experienced in this
3: now. But every single person. When they want a change done, they want something up. Yes, turn that up. Can you turn that up? Yeah, okay, yeah. can I get the bass and drums up, guitars up a touch, and then a little bit more vocal kind of thing? And I go, well, how about if we just turn everything down a bit? <laughs> well, I like, can't do that. Wow, that's it. So yeah. but everybody always saying, oh, I want more of that, more of that. They don't. Yeah. Know. I think i want a little bit less of that yeah you, right. you, you never
0: hear you never hear a guitar player saying you know you need to really bring me down in right the mix. <laughs> well he'll be quick to see. bring the bass and
3: drums down a bit <laughs> uh-huh. yeah <laughs> turn off that vocalist
1: <laughs> too funny eric spanks got a good one first he says thank you for your contributions to many of my favorite albums that's an impressive list of credits I'm guessing that it's a very different experience to work on a live performance concert movie. What stages of the productions are you normally involved with and how does it differ from your studio work?
3: Well, live, you, you kind of get one shot to do it. Um, uh, on maybe a little over half of uh, sort of the live records I've mixed, I've got to record. Uh, and for me, that makes it a little easier because I kind of know what I'm wanting to capture, and then I can tweak it in the mix. You know, sometimes you get something from somebody else, and they'll paint you a little bit into the corner, so it's a little bit harder to uh, get it to gel. Uh, But for me, funny enough, some of the most important tracks to record when you're doing live is the audience. You want to get some really good audience sounds, and it's really hard, especially the bigger live outdoor shows, Uh, because, one, the PA is so loud, you get more PA in the the thing than the audience because you can't get the mics down close to the crowd because, you know, they're spitting in them and doing whatever. (laughs) And then also the outdoor shows, you get all the the wind noises and then, uh, you know, so many cables go bad and get crackles. But, you know, it's really important to get a good audience sound, especially for the sort of the more modern, uh, when you mix a live record now, you're doing a, a DVD, so you're doing it surround well, audience is where you could really get the surround going. I mean, you know, when you're watching a live band, you don't want the the bass coming out from the rear left speaker and the kick drum from the <laughs> rear left speaker. You know, you want to see the and hear the band at the stage, but you want the audience surround. So it's really important to get the the audience mics yeah. together.
1: It's very interesting. Let's see, Here. Jamie Roberts says. Which band did you have the funnest experience with and which one was the biggest pain to work with?
3: <laughs> well, I've had a lot of, uh, the funnest experience. Uh, you know, again, the Dan Reed one, we had such a blast doing it. We're just sort of like, uh, felt like, uh, what was that? The Peter Pan thing, you know, all the little pirate kids or whatever. It's, it's sort of like what we <laughs> were. <laughs> and, uh, Uh, That was fun. Uh, The Blue Murder record was really fun. There was a lot of debauchery going on on that record. Um, And, you know, I've been really lucky. I haven't really had any pain in the asses, you know. Um, And especially the bigger band. The bigger they are, the nicer they are. You know, there might have been a few sort of young, upcoming bands that uh, come in with a real chip on their shoulder and they're just little assholes. But... uh, I can't remember any of them, to be honest. I've been quite blessed and lucky to have been able to work with uh, some really great people.
1: I suppose at that awesome. point, you know, these guys are professionals, and it's time to get down to business.
3: Well, you know, studios, you know, are expensive, so you know you don't want to get in there and start. You know, like, like I said, everybody just tends to leave your ego at the door, let's get this done, and then you can be the jerk you want. Out in public or wherever. But, you know, <laughs> we're all trying to do the same thing for you. We're trying to get the best we can and not use up as much as your money. <laughs> so, you know, come on. Let's let's get this done kind
1: of thing. Right on. <laughs> Got a good question here from our awesome friend Henning in Germany. He says, any behind-the-scenes stories on the mixing of the Bad English debut would be great. And also he loves Blue Murder and the Dan Reed Network. And he wonders about the differences between working with Richie Zito versus Bruce Fairbairn.
3: Ah, right. Okay. Uh, Well, the bad English, I just remember I think I did two record, mixed two records for them. The first one was just especially uh, awesome. I don't know what happened. You know, the band sent me the tracks. I'd never heard of the band. Um, I do know Richie produced that record. And uh, just the tracks were just Great, and I just it just all came together. I remember these guys coming in, and, and you know, they're some uh, pretty good, you know, famous musicians and that kid would come in, and they're just like blown away and say, Oh my god, this is perfect! This is the best thing ever, and they're like, Oh, no comments kind of things so I remember that impressed me on that because it's like, you know, usually I'll do my thing, and somebody wants, you know, can we, you know, brighten the guitars up, or can we? You know, there's always little changes, so there's not very many changes on that. When the band would come in and listen, um, you know, as far as work, working with with Bruce and Richie, you know, it was very different situations. Uh, Richie and I never sat and did a record together. It was more a mixing stage. So uh, we were very good friends, and actually, we ended up being on the same management. So we'd have a few dinners and lunches and and that, and we're very good friends. Uh, Didn't work together that often but you know very talented guy and it's always great when you work with a producer that is a great artist in his own right so you know he really gets the artist's perspective too uh so that makes it a little bit easier for the communication with some some musicians where you can speak as a, a fellow artist as opposed to you know me sort of trying to explain chords with my fingers in the air
1: you know all right sure you can trust what's being brought to you
4: that's right
1: (laughs) right on uh grayson gallegos has got a good one he says mike you've worked with heavy metal punk rock and pop bands and artists what do you do to keep your ears and mind fresh for all these different genres and bands
3: well, when I leave the studio, I don't put on any music. Uh, I used to put sort of my radio on in the car. I don't even do that anymore unless it's on a talk talk radio thing. Or sometimes I'll, I'll put on like a completely different, like a classical station or something. So, uh, you know, I just get Because I get my head so far into it, I just got to get, get it out of it. And there's some music I, I like listening to uh, just for pleasure, but it's really hard for me because... Next scene, you know, you're, you're going deep into the thing, and you're listening to the kick and snare, and they like, yeah. oh, yeah. go, why is that doing that? And it's, oh, right,
0: I like, I used to like this song. <laughs> yeah.
3: So it's, it's hard like a, to get out of work mode.
0: Yeah. It's so, like a reflex. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is there
1: is there a little bit of nervousness about, you know, like subliminally being influenced by something else when you're working on what you're working on?
3: No, nah, because I don't even remember that. Stuff right <laughs> like when I, I then I just the <laughs> task at hand, you know, and you know for sure I don't want to copy things, but I, I don't I don't worry about
1: that. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Keith Rockford says, with all the bands you've worked with, which created the most challenging? Talking about getting tracks recorded or even written, and who did you enjoy working with the most? Hmm.
3: Well. You know sometimes some of the younger bands are are quite challenging and it, uh, I've found especially later on in my career now that uh, you know you get them into the studio and they get what we call red light fever and uh, and then these guys are I can't believe I'm in here with Mike Frey. and they get sort of uh, uh, embarrassed or starstruck or something and they can't they can't do their thing like what's a dude I'm the normal guy. I put on my pants. Just play your guitar like you did on those demos or like I saw you play live. And Yeah, but but we're here at the warehouse studio and oh, I can't believe we're here. It's like, well, believe it. (laughs) (laughs) Let's have some fun. And, you know, and and I don't condone, you know, uh, drinking and drugging while we're working, but sometimes i say, look, dude, let's just get a case of beer and like, you guys got to settle down and, and let's get this done. It's supposed to be fun. And, When the music's fun, then it it shows up on tape. So, uh, you know, those are the more challenging ones, you know, uh, especially with the younger singers and, oh, they lost their voice and it's just nerves. And it's like, oh, get rid of your nerves. You've got nothing to be nervous about unless you piss me off. (laughs) 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 And fun bands, I mean, you know, almost every band I've worked with has been the most fun I've ever had. You know, again, the Blue Murder, Dan Reed. Uh, Thunder guys was a lot of fun. The Jackal guys, they're always fun. I've had a pretty fun uh, forty plus years of it.
0: Well, For and, sure. and you've—I mean, you've done so, many, so much with ac I have to imagine they're fun to work with too, right?
3: They are great guys because they're—they're blue collar, down to earth guys, and you would never know that they're worth multiple millions and stuff. Right? They, they just. Uh, pulled me into their little family you know when we're working together it, it, i'm just like family uh i guess that's why i keep getting the call back a lot of their uh their road crew is you know from back from day one uh so they like surrounding themselves with family and that's the feel. you know uh the last few records uh i guess his wife ella is uh, cook this dinner in the studio so it's like you know we'll be working also okay dinner time okay oh. <laughs> you would know, come to the table no oh, so how was your day today and you know it's it's just like being in the family it's awesome that that's is awesome. super
4: cool
1: <laughs> hey speaking of acdc alex gale's got a good question he says how have you got acdc's guitar sound so crisp and bright on the last two albums
3: all the records I've done with those guys, the process has been the same. There's basically, for Mal sound, there's, there's one main head and one main guitar. And uh, for Angus, there's probably two heads. And he's, well, he's got his main guitar, but sometimes he'll use one of them for leads and one for different kind of tunings that he's in. But it, it's pretty easy. Shortest guitar cable from guitar to, to head Shortest speaker lead from head to cabinet, and that's that's their sound. Wow. It's just, you know, one or two mics. Uh, it's Malcolm's uh, one guitar on one side, Angus' one on the other side. There's no doubling. Um, it's just pure... The, the mesh of their two sounds together makes it sound like it's huge. And, you know, I find as soon as you double it, you know, initially you go, oh, wow, that's huge. But now both... Well, the double and the guitar have to sit back a bit more because together they're louder, right? So right, right. there's less impact. So you know, if you can get a good sound and have one guitar, that's where the sound comes from.
0: I truly enjoyed Rocker Bust. I, I love the sound of that record.
1: Hmm. Sweet. All right, you only got a couple left. Uh, Odorous wants to know what's Axel Rose like in person. Is he just as egotistical as he is on stage and in public?
3: Well, you know, I've never, funny enough, I've never physically met Axel.
4: Um,
3: I did uh, a Guns N' Roses live mix, which was a bit of a thing to piece together because, you know, as a live band, they're more about vibe than what they're playing. So Mm -hmm. we'd have shows from all over the world, and we had uh, a crew of people piecing them together, so, you know, they'd have drums for one show and guitars for another show, because we didn't want to bring the guys in and replay anything, we wanted it all to kind of be live, so, try to make that all work. So we got most of the songs done, and I think there was three or four songs that we, the vocal we just couldn't get anything together on the vocal, so we needed to get Axel to come in and, and sing on it, so called up his people, and, you know, they arranged something. They said, oh, yeah, well, he'll be down there uh, at 10 o'clock tonight. I'm like, oh, okay, great. So I usually start at 10 and finish at 10, but I thought, okay, well, that's cool. I'll finish what I'm doing. We'll do a couple hours of Axel. So awesome. So 10, 11, 12 shows up, 1 a.m., nothing. Pulling, I can't believe it. Pulling, <laughs> pulling his people and, oh, yeah, well, i got stuff into tomorrow night for sure. So then I'd phone, you know, start phone at eight o'clock <laughs> and say, you know, good for midnight? It's probably going to be closer to one, realistically. I'm like, all right. So we did that for three or four days. And wow. then I said, okay, you know what? I'm done. <laughs> you have Axel sing these vocals when he can do it. I've done everything I can do here. I'm going back home to Vancouver. And that was kind of the end of that. Yeah. So. I've heard he's a really nice guy, but I have never seen him in person, and I, I don't appreciate people being that flaky. You know, I get it once or twice. That oh shoot, sorry, I got stuck, something came up, but right. four days straight, nah, right. that's so, that's disrespect. Yeah. So,
0: re- so reading the tea leaves, if ACDC recently worked on a record, Axel was not there
1: because you were there, correct?
3: I don't know who was there and who's not there. Oh, <laughs> come on.
1: <laughs> Detective Sinzak on the case. I'm,
0: I'm, I'm
2: trying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all
1: right, all right. Let me leash my uh, co-host here for a second. <laughs> Andrew Jacobs has got one. He says, you did a lot of the mixing on my favorite Corrosion of Conformity album, Wise Blood. What was that experience like?
3: Uh, that was awesome. I think that was shortly on the tails of doing... Mixing the load or maybe reload, because uh, Pepper and the boys were uh, big fans and friends of the Metallica. They just finished that record, and they're saying, "Oh, we need something to mix this." And, and James or somebody had said, "Oh, I gotta check out Mike, Mike Fraser." So, uh, so we hooked up in New York at the Electric Lady, and that's first time, and I think the only time I worked there. And, Oh, what a great studio. So that was, oh, yeah. Jimmy Hendrix did a lot of the stuff and right. just great, cool vibe. Um, those guys are really awesome. John Custer uh, was producer, had some, you know, great, vibey stories about, you know, he had gone to uh, Italy and had bribed a security guard to be able to get into the big pyramid, or not Italy, sorry, uh, Egypt, and got into the big pyramid and spent a night in the, one of the chambers inside oh, the big wow. room. The, like, they have <laughs> great stories. Um, but yeah, it was a fun record to do. Uh, and while we're doing it, you know, we'd, we'd sort of had the nighttime shift there. So we'd go, I think we started at 10, 10 p.m. and we'd go till, you know, 6 in the morning or something. But there's some nights, you know, one of the guys can run in and say, okay, I hear something going downstairs. And like, no, no, you can't. We're the only ones in the building. We go down there, and nobody's down. And you come back up the top of the stairs and you could hear this cat meowing or whatever. So we talked to the, the, the staff the next day. And there's, oh, yeah, the no, famous ca- uh, ghost here. That's uh, Jimmy's cat. Jimmy's cat is <laughs> still here. <laughs> what? <laughs> so that was pretty cool.
0: Oh, wow. <laughs> that's, a, that's a legendary place for sure. Oh, yeah.
3: Yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. Legendary band, too. Love those guys. Yeah.
0: What. Before we wrap up, uh, we haven't touched on Metallica yet. What did you think about working with Metallica? Oh,
3: man. Loved it, loved it, loved it. Um, You know, that was more uh, Bob Rock and Randy Staub uh, did a lot of their stuff. Uh, Then when they started doing sort of the load records, uh, they were, the band, and I don't know, I guess they all wanted to do it as a double album, Uh, but... The way the band and I guess them wanted to mix this record was spend spend time on it. So they're doing a song every five or six days. And usually when you mix it, you do a song a day kind of thing. Well, to do, you know, whatever, 25 songs, <laughs> five or six days a song was just going to take too long. So that's where they, they hired me to come in. And Randy was mixing in one studio and I was across the street in another studio, and they're basically twin studios, you know, same gear and stuff, and so we each mixed half the record. And by the time we got Load done, and, you know, whatever, everybody managed, everybody's saying, look, we just can't do a lot, uh, double record. This is just going to take too long. So they stopped at Load, did their tour, all that, then we came back and did basically Reload. And I think on Reload, they, they recorded a few more songs, and then we did the same thing, mixed it again, but I thought it really tough spending five or six days. a Song, you know, one day you'd spend drums only. All you'd have is the drum tracks, and they're still doing edits on the bass. And then the second day, oh great, we got the bass now. You know, so <laughs> it's just I'm more of a uh, organic. You know, I need to get into the vibe. I need to hear everything, and how's that working? So yeah, yeah it's hard to do, but. Uh, Fun, great guys. You know, a lot of people say Lars is, is a bit of a dick to work with, and I didn't find that at all. Uh, he knows what he wants, um, you know, and he expects you to get it. So that's being a dick. Uh, I don't think so. <laughs> it's just person you do your better than your best. Yeah, of.
0: I think Toby Wright was said about the same thing, but he said it still took them three weeks to get drum tracks for and Justice for All.
4: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: well because he cares you know right yeah well yeah he's he wanted to piece apart every little dry he cares about every single you know yeah. note being struck on his drums
4: yeah
3: yeah exactly i'd rather that than somebody go oh that's good enough
1: yeah can
0: you just deal with it can you
3: fix it <laughs> okay
1: <laughs> were you a fan of metallica before the load and reload albums um well i really liked the uh, you know
3: what's the the black album uh I have to say I'm not really, you know, sort of the heavy speed, whatever metal kind of stuff. You know, Uh, I like Iron Maiden, never got hugely into them, that kind of stuff. So that part of metal was heavier than what, uh, you know, I was ever into or exposed to. But I love the aggression of it. And when it's done well, I, I love it. But, you know, I didn't know it well. For sure. The reason good I was boy.
1: asking is because you know the load and reload albums were so much different than what Metallica fans had gotten used to over the years. I was wondering how your reaction was to it that it wasn't your typical, just straightforward rock and metal Metallica.
3: Yeah, um, yeah, they seem to like to experiment, you know. I mean, their experiment with Bob turned out really good, uh, and then they go and make the same anger, and everybody blames bob and that but you know it's the band trying to reinvent and do something different but stay in the same vein is it's not an easy thing to do and and you know they're probably similar you know though i've never recorded with metallica but they're probably similar as acdc where acdc doesn't record songs that they want to do they're not told hey we need another hit we need this we need like they just do what they want to do and and If uh, they want to do songs they like doing and hope the fans like it, too. And so, you know, Metallica is probably the same kind of thing. Like they they got to where they are by not listening to everybody else. They did what they wanted to do. So that's true. Sometimes you do what you wanted to do in a certain moment in time and your fans go, oh, what the hell did you do? Oh, you lost. Well, we did what we wanted to do. (laughs) Sorry, you don't like it. You know, right.
1: Alright, I've got sense. one and I've decided I'm gonna ask every single guest this for the rest of the show's eternity. Okay. Do you have a funny Ace Fraley story? Oh wow. Uh no. no. <laughs> <laughs> well
4: never I had to ask.
3: <laughs> yeah, I never worked with that. So I don't I don't know. <laughs> Sorry,
1: Ace. <laughs> and then we got one more. Oh, well, this is an interesting one. It comes from Garth Richardson. Oh, great. <laughs> he wants to know, what's the best plug-in when mixing a drink?
3: <laughs> well, my secret is, is you've got to keep the alcohol in the freezer. The the Your mixes have to be cold in the fridge and then a big, giant glass of ice. So you fill that about half full of your alcohol, splash it off with whatever mix you're using, and you've got the perfect drink.
0: I love the fact that you had an answer ready to go for that. Uh-huh.
3: <laughs> well, I'm thinking about uh, looking at one of those right about now.
1: <laughs> Words of wisdom from a master mixologist. <laughs> I'm guessing you you know Garth
2: pretty well. Yeah, yeah, we've, we've done a few things together. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's hilarious. That's awesome, Man, this has been a lot of fun. You got some great stories, man.
3: Oh, thanks, man. It's uh, it's been a pleasure coming on and. You know, we should definitely do this again.
0: Yeah, Uh, we want to we want to break out break down a whole record with you for our albums and series. And uh, I'm I'm tempted to say cover uh, either Coverdale page or Blue Murder. What do you think?
3: uh, Either or, uh, you know, give me some heads up, and then I'll do a little research on them so I can uh, even remember the songs. Right? Yeah. (laughs) But sure,
1: yeah, for sure,
3: awesome. (laughs)